What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Tensions just keep rising between the U.S. and China. The latest, the U.S. is moving to curtail Huawei Technologies' chip supply. This is part of what's been driving down semiconductor shares. But this just builds on a whole host of rhetoric coming out of Washington, as well as Beijing, back and forth, raising the question, what's the end game here? Are we entering a new Cold War? Leland Miller joining us now, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International. Uh, Leland, what do you make of this back and forth? Fourth and the latest move against Huawei? Well, I think the, the move itself is quite misunderstood, and, and for good reason. I mean, almost nobody can figure out what's happening. Uh, but I think the best way to look at it is the United States has extraordinary leverage o- over Taiwan Semiconductor because it provides inputs uh, that are important for production, and it is the largest uh, purchaser of, uh, of, of semiconductors. And so it's extraordinarily important uh, customer. Uh, and what the United States government has said it will do, starting supposedly today, is require any, uh, any uh, relationships with Huawei to get a license. So in order, you can't just sell to, to Huawei if you're using U.S. Uh, technology in your, in your product. You have to actually apply for a license with the Department of Commerce. Now, if this is held to that standard and they don't grant the license, then this is an enormously powerful move. If they do grant the licenses, then this is an empty move. So it's less about what this has done and how it's how they're going to treat this in the future. And I think that's why this has led to an extraordinary amount of confusion. So, Leland, how does China view, uh, I guess we'll call them renewed trade tensions here? What's kind of their perspective, do you think? I think that they're looking at them on several several different levels. Now, you have some things that are happening. Uh, you know, you, the, the phase one trade deal is in real trouble. Uh, it's, it'll be toast by this September, by September. I think uh, I think we're, we're we're at the very end of the trade deal talks. On, on the other hand, you have some very big, very aggressive moves being talked about, like abrogating U.S. debt obligations, ripping away sovereign immunity from the Chinese. These aren't serious moves. Uh, but if they move, you know, if the White House moved in this direction, that there would be severe repercussions. And then there are certain things where they're just trying to digest these moves piece by piece. What's happening to Huawei? What's happening with the government pension fund cutting off flows to China? So there's so much going on that I think that the Chinese government is forced to look at this as what's important, what can we live with, and what is an absolute deal breaker in the relationship where we're going to start having real serious retribution. What's the end goal? I mean, I'm just extrapolating forward. Is there a red line? And then once we cross that, we move to phase X where Y happens. Is there something like that that you're sort of foreseeing? Not yet, because everybody understands that so much of what's going on on the U.S. side is about the 2020 election. So President Trump realizes that there are domestic difficulties with COVID and, and the state of the economy right now. And the safest 
uh, platform is just to go tough, tough, tough on China. So the Chinese understand that. What they want to see is, is, is how much of this is going to be more than a couple months, how much of this is actually a game changer in the relationship. If phase one is suspended, by September, which is our expectation, then that doesn't mean they can't pick it up in January if, if President Trump's reelected. That's not going to ruffle the waters too much, although you get some loud talk. If you ever saw serious movement towards ripping sovereign immunity away from from from, uh, from Beijing for, for COVID-related lawsuits, I mean, that would that would that would create financial warfare on a scale we've never seen. So they're just taking their time to understand it. They get that most of this is empty rhetoric, and they're just trying to make sure that they don't overreact as, as this stuff gets played out before the election. How is uh, President Trump's relationship with President Xi of China? I mean, President Trump has touted it as very strong and a you know, a, you know really strong relationship. But um, how, how would you gauge that right now? And how important is it to have a good relationship? I mean, they're best friends. Uh, Look, look, if if President Trump is being nice to China, I think they get along quite well. If he's not, then, you know, the the relationship's allergic, uh, you know, for Xi, it's it's, uh, the same same for Trump. So, you know, to the extent that they can get on the phone and they do have some semblance of a personal relationship to diffuse tensions if they want to to pull that escape hatch. I, I think there's something to that. But look, this is just politics. It's domestic politics right now where the party tries to, uh, you know, confuse people about uh, their initial reaction to, to COVID and, and claim that they've been doing a good job all around. The, the administration in, in the United States has the same sort of issue. How can we distract from COVID and go tough on the Chinese? So a lot of this, again, politics, empty rhetoric, we still need to see what, what's going to be durable past the election, regardless of who's president. When you talk about Xi Jinping, I wonder how much his power is being challenged, especially given the data that we got overnight. Yes, we got factory output surging more than people expected in China, but the services data, real bleak, not coming back that quickly. What do you foresee economically for the China for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't surprise us at all. The Chinese want to turn these factories on and start cranking things out. The problem is their order books are collapsing because there's not a lot of strength in the domestic economy. It's recovering, but but at a slow pace. And you know, it's the external environment's falling apart because of the slowdowns or the shutdowns uh, in Euro- U.S. and Europe and elsewhere. So there, there's a lot of problems. You know, this is what we saw in our April survey. We've got our we've got our new uh, May flash data coming out, and you know. A, about two weeks. Uh, these are the dynamics that we've seen, too. And it is putting Xi under severe pressure. It's one of the reasons why China sort of U-turned from this, let's go out and, and be global leaders, and, and really just backtracked to convincing their domestic population that everyone's getting up on China and you have to defend the party. And this is why Xi's support and the party's support is relatively high at home, but why everyone around the world right now is mad at China. Uh, for, for very aggressive diplomatic behavior. Leland, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on all things China. Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book uh, International. Lisa, it's uh, you know it's really interesting. I always appreciate Leland's perspective here, suggesting here that a lot of this is just rhetoric from, I guess, both sides of it, but certainly as it relates to uh, the U.S. side, uh, as it relates to a presidential election coming up. And here's a topic that has proven to be very beneficial uh, to President Trump and his base in a time when there's a lot of grim news out there as it relates to the economy and then the pandemic. 
The interesting thing, I think, is that the Democrats and Democratic candidate Joe Biden is also taking a very hard line. I mean, it's bipartisan, this anger toward China. My question is, at what point does the rhetoric go to a place where it cannot return, right? I mean, at what point do we cross some line where we do enter some sort of escalating spiral that both Xi Jinping and Donald Trump have a hard time backing down from? Yeah, exactly right. We will certainly be paying close attention to that. You know, we've seen just in the past couple of days some really brutal uh, data as it relates to the consumer, whether it's uh, jobless claims uh, yesterday or, or retail sales today. And the question is, what does that mean for the real estate market here? I mean, if consumers are out of jobs, if they're really worried, they're not spending, what are they doing in terms of real estate? To get some good answers, we welcome Jonathan Miller, President and Chief Executive Officer of Miller Samuel, based in New York City. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us here. Interest rates, you know, at or near all-time lows, that's generally really good for uh, the real estate market. Give us a sense of how consumers are behaving here as it relates to real estate. Well, you know, so much about what happens in the real estate market is is pragmatic in the context of uh, real estate agents and brokers can't show properties yet. Uh, and virtual is certainly, uh, you know, out there and, you know, uh, you know, people are doing Zoom calls and, and all that sort of thing. The problem is that most people aren't going to pull the trigger, so to speak, on a home purchase if they can't physically see it. A lot of the contracts that we're seeing now have linkage to sort of pre-COVID periods where somebody had looked at a property and then, you know, lost interest and now they're coming back. Um, Alternatively, on the rental market, uh, we're also seeing a sharp drop in new leasing activity as most of the transactions where rents are being negotiated lower are occurring on the renewal side and not public facing. So we're really in a moment where there's just not a lot of data um, you know, at the moment. I think that'll change pretty quickly as shelter-in-place rules start to ease. And we're starting to hear about areas outside of the major metropolitan areas and the coasts picking up traction quickly, even sight unseen, people trying to just buy houses that are outside of the most densely populated areas. Does that give you a hint about a possible exodus from New York City, San Francisco, some of these other areas that have been harder hit? Well, you know, we're already seeing, uh, you know, an outbound migration, at least in inquiries. But the initial wave is more is predominantly rental inquiries, you know, as urban dwellers are sort of testing the waters for, uh, you know, suburban life. Uh, We've actually seen this before. This occurred right after 9-11. And within two to three years, that outbound migration reversed. Um, also, too, I have a high confidence level in the ability of human beings to uh, forget the recent past. And, uh, and so, uh, so I'm totally in agreement that we are going to and are already seeing this suburban or even second home uh, search, but I'm not confident about it being a permanent structural uh, change in the way people view cities. Jonathan, there is a question, though. Is this time different given the remote work type situation, the idea that working from home is gaining traction in a way that it never has before? Does that change the equation? I I, I think it helps uh, expand the time frame of the suburban, um, you know, the move to suburban. um, But commute times, you know, I, I think it's a little premature to declare 
that uh, people are going to be buying houses, uh, the ma- mainstream, not on the margin, um, because they don't have to go into the office. I, I don't. Right now, when you talk to corporate America and they're talking about expanding, um, you know, they're thinking on going, you know, remo- having remote workers. You have to remember that many of these companies are hemorrhaging right now, and they're anxious and desperate for cost-saving measures. And so I don't know if that mindset is going to remain in place two or three years from now. But it certainly helps expand the time frame that, you know, this potentially could happen. So, Jonathan, as we look to the other side of this pandemic, and uh, let's assume there is a vaccine out there in some reasonable period of time, how do you expect, and given where rates are, and a lot of people expect rates to be lower for longer, even before the pandemic, how do you expect the, the U.S. kind of real estate market to play out? Well, uh, what we're already seeing in markets that have uh, uh, allowed the showing of real estate by the brokerage community, we're already seeing a real uptick. It's still far below normal, uh, but we're seeing a rapid uh, increase in pending sales. Now, it's not clear whether this is a function of just a release of pent-up demand over the last couple of months um, or this is just the market racing to get back to normal. Um, you know, we certainly have extensive job loss, and you know that is weighs heavy on um, how this looks post post crisis. But at least from what I'm seeing in other areas of the country, uh, I'm encouraged by the the sort of return to uh, transactional type activity, um, and and I think that bodes well for New York as well. I just think it's we're going to be sort of late to the party on that, given the extent of the crisis in our uh, region. Jonathan Miller, thank you so much. It is wonderful to have you on. It's really wonderful perspective from your decades of experience. Uh, Jonathan Miller of Miller and Samuel, just really highlighting the nuance here as we look to a post-pandemic world of real estate. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It was possibly the most intriguing column that I read this week by Andreas Kluth of Bloomberg Opinion. Your kids may never return to normal (laughs) schooling. And honestly, it was a fascinating column. Andreas Kluth, he's a member of Bloomberg's editorial board. He also was previously editor-in-chief of Handelsblatt Global and a writer for The Economist. Andreas, this sucked me in as the mother of two children who are homeschooling via computer at home, including a son who is learning coding from an 18-year-old in Singapore. I've learned uh, who he found because he enjoyed his codes. I'm just wondering, what's the future here of education? Well, the future, hey, that's that's a mouthful, but um, the future is, and as I said in the column, 
could be very dark or it could be rather brighter. So, and, and unfortunately, it could be both at the same time for different of us because the, the worst thing about these school closures or these partial openings, because, for instance, I'm in Berlin. I have three kids. They've started going back to school this year. But that just means staggered shifts. They're not, you know, it's not binary. They're not totally open. We will probably have very little time in physical schools for a long time, maybe years. And so the downside is, in this age of inequality, some kids, some families, digital divide and everything, will get left behind. But in this column, I wanted to focus on what I think caught your attention, which was the positive side, provided that teachers and, and unions, teacher unions and school boards and so forth, see this as an opportunity and say, what can we do differently? And that brought me to concepts in my conversation that I had with, with something called blended or flipped classrooms, you know, and I, we, we, we would have to go into that a little bit. All right. So let's let's do go into that. What's kind of a flipped classroom? I'm sensing it's a little bit of a, a mix of physical and virtual. Yes. And nobody, just to be clear, is, is ever talking about getting rid of human connections. In fact, the goal here is to make the human connections stronger and better. And both the physical, even if we have less time in a physical classroom with a teacher, we want to make that better. And also the in-person, the classroom or one-on-one on Zoom, for instance. So it's not about replacing anybody. It's just about making them better. So what we want to do is to use tools, online tools. And I happen to talk to Sal Khan for this column because I myself for my kids use Khan Academy, but there's a lot of these EdTech tools. So for instance, something like, or, or let me get, tell you what, for the past 200 years since the, industrial, in the, since the Industrial Revolution, you had a teacher at the front at a blackboard, and the innovation is that that's not a whiteboard, and he lectures to a passive class, sends the kids home, they fill out a worksheet, a lot of them have no clue what they're doing, they go back to class, they keep going anyway, even though some kids are left behind, and at the end they take a standardized test, okay? So that's not ideal. So what we want to do now is why not flip this so you watch the lectures at home. That's pretty active. You pause it, you rewind it, you comment on it the way the kids do, and then you do some online exercises to drill it, and the teacher is already logged on and looking at who's stuck where, and then you go to class, and now class is not the lecture, but now class is a one-on-one or small group social interactive uh, session where, where the teacher go, goes to where you, where this student is, not where the class should be, where, where, where this student is, and he either helps him in a, with a problem or extends the knowledge if he's doing well. And that's, a to- that's flipping it or blending the online and the offline. Andreas, just real quick here, I'm wondering how parental involvement kind of gets amplified here <laughs> in terms of the divide between uh, people who are involved versus those who aren't. I think hugely. There's no way around this um, because it's a social problem. But I, my wife and I, we have three kids. We're incredibly involved. That's what led me to talk to Salcon because I've been doing this for years. And sadly, many many other parents are not, not because necessarily they're bad parents, but because they're, they're, they're out working or they, they don't have Wi-Fi and we have these problems. So the downside, and, I, and this was the topic of my previous column, the dark side is this was the bright side before that I wrote the dark the dark side is 
as a result of this pandemic and the school closures, we will have dramatically more inequality, not just now, but for years to come as these kids go to college or, in fact, don't go to college or go less to college and then are more unemployed and make less, this will exacerbate inequality. There is no way around that. Andreas, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your columns. Really thought-provoking, particularly uh, for those of us who do have some school-age uh, children and, and are kind of kind of weighing these issues here. Andreas Kluth, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from Berlin. Uh, you know, I can't imagine, Lisa, I mean, you've got the two young ones kind of doing this for an extended period of time, even beyond what we've done this year. Yeah, well, I think that we're going to get used to that idea because I don't know when they're going back. <laughs> yeah, I got to exactly. say, after listening uh, to, to Anthony Fauci, he yeah. said, you know, who knows? September might be premature. Exactly. So we'll have to see about it. We're all waiting for the vaccine. If you ask somebody, what's the outlook for municipal finances right now? They might say, not great, Bob. Not so great. <laughs> right now, we are facing a huge deficit in cities across the country. And joining us now with a comprehensive look is Kathleen McNamara, Senior Municipal Bond Strategist at UES Wealth Management, which put out a report highlighting just how bleak the situation is. Kathleen, can you start with just an overview, a historical perspective of how bleak this is relative to previous difficult times in the U.S. economy? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, in, in our report, you know, we, we do talk about the fact that this, you know, COVID-19 is really what we look at as an exogenous shock to the system. Um, you know, certainly we've been through crises before, the financial crisis just 10 years ago, but that was really triggered by, you know, um, a banking uh, crisis. And in this uh, scenario, the banks actually were in a strong position um, going into this crisis. Um, so here we're dealing with something we haven't dealt with before. We're dealing with a health crisis, um, which has turned into a financial crisis, which in turn is, is weighing on um, almost every area of the municipal bond market. And we do go through um, all of the uh, different sectors in the uh, muni market and what we see um, going forward. So, Kathleen, what are some of the sectors that are kind of most at risk here? I know the pain is pretty broad-based, pretty deep, but what are some of the sectors that kind of jumped out at you? Yeah, the sectors uh, that we uh, talk about in the report that jump out to us as um, going to experience the most stress is the private higher ed sector um, as well as the healthcare sector. Um, you know, by contrast, um, you know, states, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, negative headlines with respect to states, um, but we do think that, um, you know, states are going to benefit from this, you know, municipal liquidity facility that the Fed has established, and we also believe that, you know, states have more flexibility, um, you know, to manage their finances through the crisis. Um, so it's really the, you know, the higher education um, sector that we do have um, the most concern about. You know, in that, in that sector, you know, we believe that we're going to see some, you know, substantial near-term stu student enrollment pressures. Um, we're going to see some decline in investment portfolios, you know, as well as, you know, the role of technology. I mean, what we're seeing now is that um, some of these, you know, universities have shifted to online classes, and that has meaningful implications for the sector. You know, of course, you know, there's 
the institutions with large endowments and strong brands, we think those will be resilient and easily adapt to the changes and retain their market position. But by contrast, you know, some of the smaller liberal arts colleges that already face demographic and financial challenges, we do think that, um, you know, the impact from COVID-19 is going to be meaningful. We are expecting some sort of financial bailout, or perhaps that's the wrong word, rescue financing from the federal government to states, municipalities. But they've made it very clear that they don't want to backstop governments that have been irresponsible with their finances heading into this. And that really speaks to pension underfunding, which has gotten dramatically worse. What's the consequence there for the situation that the pensions are in, given the fact that I can't really foresee how some of them are going to meet their upcoming obligations without a dramatic shift in the market. Uh, Yeah, I mean, pensions obviously, you know, are an issue, you know, for some of the states and local governments, not all. And actually, in our report, we do um, rank uh, all 50 states um, in terms of their pension funding metrics. So we always want everybody to know that, yeah, I mean, the, the states that are experiencing the most stress, you know, are in the headlines, but it's not every single state. Um, with that, you know, what, what can they do? I mean, you know, we are hopeful that there will be some more um, aid coming to state and local governments. I mean, the House is expected to pass a bill today that will include another um, trillion dollars in aid to state and local governments. Of course, you know, I don't think that that full amount is going to gain approval in the Senate, um, but on the bright side, it is a starting point for negotiations. And the other thing is, you know, the, the fact that, the, you know, the Fed has established the municipal liquidity facility. I mean, this is something different than what we saw during the financial crisis. So I think it's showing that the Fed is willing to do, you know, whatever it takes to to help these state and local governments, um, you know, move along. I mean, on the flip side, uh, what you mentioned is, is, you know, there's no appetite to bail out certain states that um, have not been managing their pension issue through through the years. so that, that's really the, uh, the sticking point and becomes, becomes quite political. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your perspective on the municipal bond market. Kathleen McNamara, Senior Municipal Bond Strategist for UBS Global Wealth Management. And Lisa, it's going to be really interesting to see the political uh, kind of machinations here over the next several days and maybe weeks between the Democrats and Republicans as it relates to this new fiscal stimulus plan. The prior fiscal stimulus plans were generally bipartisan, passed fairly quickly. This one appears to be a little bit more contentious, and I think it does go in, in part, as Kathleen was suggesting, to you know funds for state and local municipalities. Yeah, this is the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi bill. It's a $3 trillion bill. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, majority leader, has said it's dead on arrival, so it's not going to pass the Senate in its full form. But he is going to take cues to some degree from Jay Powell and Stephen Mnuchin, who are testifying together in front of the Senate Banking Committee uh, next week on Tuesday. Very curious to hear what they have to say. Yeah, I mean, you think about uh, some of the data points we've seen this week, Lisa, in terms of the jobless claims and then the retail sales today. There's certainly enough economic data out there to prod both houses, both sides, to move forward with some uh, fiscal stimulus because there is real pain out there in the U.S. economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.